I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio versus the Martians. This month, Don Bluth. Gene Simmons, the betonged frontman for KISS, once opined that the era of the rock star was over. What he meant is that because of the multiplicity of musical superstars across all of the genres of music, there could no longer be an Elvis or a Beatles or B.B. King. And it follows with the arts in general. This is true, too, of animated filmmakers, for whom Walt Disney was that singular example. But after Disney's death of lung cancer in 1966, a vacuum of talent and direction appeared. A challenger for his throne came from a 30-something animator and director by the name of Don Bluth. Don Bluth, a young Disney-obsessed country boy from Utah, had fulfilled his childhood dream of working at Disney at the age of 18. Eventually, he would work himself up the ranks to become a character animator for the feature films Robin Hood and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, and then as a directing animator for The Rescuers. However, Bluth found himself listless. He recalled working at Disney without its patriarch as boring and ruled by committee. But it was there that he met and forged his relationships with two other animators, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy. They were inspired to attempt to revive the classic animation style of Walt-era Disney, and to try to provoke the sleeping giant with some healthy competition. To do so, they decided to quit and start their own animation studio without financial backing and a distributor. Naive as they were, they worked nights and weekends to produce the short Banjo the Woodpile Cat, and then slogged for the next five years to produce the now cult classic The Secret of Nim. Although a box office failure, and then going bankrupt, the trio of animators formed the Bluth Group, and created what is now considered a pivotal but short-lived advance in video game technology, Dragon's Lair. Bluth would triumphantly return to animated features, this time enlisting the help of Steven Spielberg. An American Tale would be a box office smash, embarrassing Disney's lackluster The Black Cauldron the year before. He would follow up with a Spielberg and George Lucas produced The Land Before Time, which was also a smash hit, and a sure sign that feature-length animation was making a comeback. The studio, now running at full speed, All Dogs Go to Heaven, would follow a year later, not faring well critically, but more importantly, going headlong against Disney's The Little Mermaid, a breakout success, and the beginning of the so-called Disney Renaissance. The 90s would follow with a string of middling features, Rockadoodle, Thumbelina, A Troll in Central Park, and return briefly to mainstream success with Anastasia, but more aping Disney's new fairy tale style than a return to classic mid-20th century form. Bluth's final feature would be 2000's Titan AE, a hybrid 2D and 3D animation sci-fi story. With the disappointing re returns of Titan AE, Bluth conceded and shuttered his studio. Bluth would lie fallow for nearly 15 years until he resurfaced with a Kickstarter campaign to turn Dragon's Lair into a feature film. The Kickstarter failed, apparently signaling a lack of sufficient nostalgia, but found limited success starting a new Indiegogo campaign. The question is, can Bluth further his dream of rekindling the magic, lost art of the 2D cell-animated feature? 
Or is his legacy now that of Walt Disney's, an animation pioneer whose vision is firmly behind us? Those questions and more await us on this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians, Don Bluth. Okay, let's go to this month's panelists. Returning for the umpteenth time, friend of the show, co-host, producer of the Ask an Atheist radio program, Becky Friedman, welcome. Thank you, Casey. And another returning panelist, producer and co-host of View from the Gutters podcast, back for his sophomore visit, Joe Preddy. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. And last but not least, Littlefoot to my sharp tooth, <laughs> Justin to my Jenner, Mike Gillis. How's it going? Going pretty good, Casey. All right. Let's get into this. Becky, Mike told me that when we talked about doing a panel that you were visibly shaking, you were vibrating at the opportunity to talk about Don Bluth. Tell me why such a reaction to the films of Don Bluth. Because somewhere out there, <laughs> someone... <laughs> <laughs> no. um, I love Fievel because Fievel, this this little uh, Jewish girl of the 80s in uh, Central California with no other Jewish kids in her school, loved Fievel. I mean, seriously, this was a movie about the history of my people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd have to wait like uh, 12 more years later for... Till Prince eight, of Egypt, eight, right? No, for Eight Crazy Nights, <laughs> Oh, right? okay, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Obviously. Oh. That was completely ignorable. <laughs> Um, no, it it was all it was all about the five hole. And then, you know, then when you start thinking about it, the little foot and um, yeah, I'm just Land Before Time and Five Hole was uh, was something that uh, ranked up there with the awesome Disney things. And then when you go back to Don Bluth's uh, Disney start, you know, his start in Disney with Robin Hood um, oh, yeah. and uh, and even Sleeping Beauty. It's just quite beautiful. And I was very excited. Okay, so you're you're pulling from that narrow strip of your childhood when Don Booth was in his ascendancy, right? Yes, that, mar- that made an indelible mark. So, Joe, I want to move to you. Uh, you when you joined us before, we were talking about Batman and all of his iterations. It was a great show. And as a fan of comics and animation, I want to I want you to sort of gauge what your familiarity is with uh, with Bluth and how he sort of stacks up in your mind. Well, uh, Don Bluth is it's he's one of those like omnipresent figures from my childhood because. The Secret of Nim. Somehow I missed Land Before Time. I don't know how because mm. Fievel and um, Nim were like like always there. I've seen those movies so many times. It's not even funny. But um, I, th- I, yeah, he just re- he just kind of holds has this little room in my head where uh, he he'll always kind of be there, which is weird because. Uh, as a parent, then his stuff in the '90s were stuff that my kids watched uh, when they got, you know, ten probably ten years later when they were old enough to watch it, and that those were not good times for me. <laughs> so, All right, well, well, let's save that for later because we're going to have a lot to talk about that that period. I want to go to Mike. Um, what what do you remember, Mike? Because clearly we're just talking about mostly this experience of of Bluth as sort of a nostalgia figure and someone who largely just doesn't exist in our adult lives. So tell me about uh, about Don Bluth, how you think about it as a kid and now as an as, as an adult. Well, I think that Don Bluth, uh, though I didn't know it at the time, when you're a kid, you don't really know who makes the stuff that you like and enjoy. Right. I mean, creators. The first time I remember creators being a name as a part of anything is probably the 1990s Marvel, where mm. I knew who like Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane was. But when I was a little kid, I didn't know the difference between Disney and Don Bluth. I mean, I knew that there was a difference, but I didn't know that there was a person that did all of these other things. I just knew that there was this big block of just animated movies 
But as I kind of got older, and his movies were coming out around the time I was 9, 10, 11, I mean, the real height of his movies, yeah. there was something different about them that I knew wasn't Disney. I didn't know what it was, but there was something a bit more dangerous. There was something more dark about it. There was something a bit, I won't call yeah. it necessarily anti-authoritarian, but there was an underdog quality to it. Mm-hmm. And for this brief period of like five years, which when you're young feels like about 20 years, he was kind of kicking Disney's ass. And for me, the deciding factor at that age was which of these animated features gets the tie-in to the Happy Meal? Because when you're a little kid, that's <laughs> right. like winning a fucking Oscar. <laughs> and the thing to notice with Don Bluth that I just really respect now, because I do love these sort of scrappy competitor underdogs. I mean, Pepsi is way more interesting than Coke. They do things like, you know, Pepsi Blue, Pepsi, you know, Crystal Pepsi. Mm -hmm. Sega is more interesting than Nintendo. They aren't aren't objectively as good. Sorry, Sam. But (laughs) there there is a quality that I can't help but root for that side. And Don Bluth is that guy, that guy who would release movies on the same day, the same release date as these major features that Disney was putting out. It's not just taking on the giant. And nowadays, I remember that they moved the release date of the Batman v Superman so they wouldn't be in theaters at the same time as Star Wars. Hmm. Nowadays, I think everyone is really afraid to step on toes because that first weekend is everything. But to take on Disney, the juggernaut of animation, the brand name that even as a kid I knew, because the Disney brand is so omnipresent with animation, to take that on, not only in theaters at the same time, but on the same release date and say, motherfucker, I can beat right. you. And the fact that for like five years, he did. Yeah. I, and, and it's interesting that when we talk about uh, Don Booth at large as his legacy, we're really actually talking about him being in opposition to Walt Disney. Yeah. Rarely are we talking about the qualities of Don Booth's, what he, what he himself does well and what distinguishes. And uh, I was reading what uh, about the legacy. Don Booth himself says, you know, Disney was the master storyteller, which is what we'd like to be. Him talking about himself and John Pomeroy and uh, the other guy. Gary Goldman. Goldman, yes. Um, There will be no second Disney. This is basically what he said. So he said, there will be no second Disney. It's wonderful that his success could occur and he could show all the animation that all the animation can be. Unfortunately, his legacy has been left to those who would chop it up and sell it in the meat market. But he didn't tell all the stories, and we want to understand how he told stories and then go from there. So it's funny that he set off as a path, like I said in the intro, to basically say, um, f- you know, you're doing garbage, so we're going to do what? We're going to be Disney 2.0 or Disney 1.9, essentially. Um, and I guess the open question to you guys is, is did he did he uh, take the take it to the next level, or did he just keep doing what Disney was doing up until Disney... Uh, you know, revitalized itself in the 90s with Little Mermaid and beyond. I wouldn't say that it's a matter of taking something to the next level, one-upping, but sort of a lateral move. You mm. have a niche that Disney is, is filling, whether it's, you know, in the in the early 90s with Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, that things are very happy and and brightly colored and everything, um, you know, or, or the Princess franchise that then took off from there. But it, a lateral move to something Mike, that you were definitely alluding to, which is that darker, the scrappier, the just sort of a little bit more unnerving than anything that Disney yeah. was putting out in the 80s, 90s, and then in the 2000s with the, with the, the, the computer animation. Right. Yeah, there's a real sense that it's a different tone than Disney. And this, again, gets to that 
idea of the scrappy underdog competitor. Pepsi tries way harder than Coke does. I mean, Coke is a much more conservative company the way that Nintendo is a more conservative company, the way Disney's a more conservative company. They take fewer risks. They hold back longer. They don't do anything if they don't necessarily have a good idea of what the outcome is going to be. There is no crystal Coke. (laughs) There just isn't. Um, that's That's the move of a company that has something to prove. And Don Bluth had something to prove. Uh, the Basically, they don't have a Laurel to sit on. He has to make his legacy. Right. Because people who come on and animate for Disney have the name Disney and the legacy of 50 years of these animated classics that are gorgeous movies sitting on there. And that animation that was non-Disney at that point wasn't necessarily very good and certainly prestigious, that the the money that went into it the craft that went into it. I mean, I like Hanna-Barbera cartoons as much as anybody, but there's a lot of cut corners. I mean, it's nothing but cut corners in a lot of those movies that you see with those characters, that you have the character moving as minimally as possible, that the backgrounds uh, repeat themselves as you run past them. They aren't as lovingly painted as Disney does. So Don Bluth is actually trying to compete with that level of craft. And... He's able to pull it off. And like you were talking about, Becky, before, that there's a tone to these movies that Disney won't go to. That even the scariest moments in The Little Mermaid, like when Ariel goes into that tunnel with all those people who'd sold their soul to Ursula, and those little, like, little shrimp guys, that's fucking horrifying. But it's a moment. What Bluth does, which was a little bit different, is he has those scary moments, but there's a sense of the safety getting pulled out, that somebody could get really hurt here in a way that they aren't. The colors are muted, that yeah. Fievel wears a bright red shirt and a, and a blue hat, but you never see them as bright blue and bright red. Right. There's times that the colors are so muted that his shirt is practically brown. Right. And there's a sense of pathos over something. It's not just the short moment of darkness or sadness. It's a sense that the characters might actually fail. Well, and they do. They yeah. do often in Bluth movies. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's, there's a level of ugly adult reality and the sense that you're not guaranteed the happy ending. You're going to get it, but you're going to have to emotionally earn that happy ending. And the recognition I think Bluth has that Disney's a lot more careful with is the recognition that children can handle darker content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly say this: uh, the dark being sort of a general a general theme you can you can supplant on Don Bluth. Uh, everything that he makes is certainly apt, right? Um, but I'll counter it with this: like, with the exception of I didn't see Thumbelina, so I can't comment. But with the exception of Anastasia and Titan A.E., which were so late in his in his career that I just I I think they they feel much less like Bluth movies and more like cribbing on other movies um but don bluth is still having animated characters you're still cats and rats and mice and ducks and pigeons flying around so you're still you're still feeling like that it's still going to have that disney kitty everything's gonna everything's gonna be all right in the end because it's in that formula where it's not dangerous right it's not really dangerous with these lovable animated animals you know Mm -hmm. um and he, he rarely ever departs from that. So I guess the uh, I guess the the point that I'm circling around here is is that uh, except sort for sort of some thematic diversions from a normal Disney movie, they still feel a lot like a Disney movie. Except perhaps they to me they feel a little bit more muddled sometimes. They don't they don't necessarily always have a straight line. 
in these plots. Sometimes there's things that are happening that are are inconsequential to the story, um, and they don't they never feel as cohesive to me. Well, there's elements of non-Disney influence in them. And I could point to something like the animation of Martin Rosen. He's a guy who did Watership Down and Plague Dogs, which are much darker than even Blue stuff. They're basically based on adult novels that are just made into animated movies. There's a lot of dark material there. But there's an element of that. I wouldn't say it's Ralph Mm Bakshi-esque with the underground comics vibe, but it pulls more in that direction. There's less of an influence on... Uh, the characters being on model and being uh, with light, uh, rounded curves to them, making them much more appealing to children, less scary to children. They're not afraid of dark colors. Uh, villains in Bluth movies can be fucking terrifying. If yeah. there's anything that's fucking terrifying, it's cats in yeah. these movies. Yeah, they get such a bad rep. My God, they're always killers. Uh, like Dragon in The Secret of Nim is almost always completely in shadow. He's like a mix of black, really, really dark gray, and then you can see his eyes and his teeth and the inside of his mouth. And he's like a demon. Uh, yeah. The same thing, there are elements in uh, Land Before Time. Uh, Sharptooth is drawn almost in the exact same way, where his teeth and his eyes just jet out at you, and you just see these flashing teeth. And he's a bit closer to something like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, where <laughs> they still humanize a lot of the villains in Disney movies. We see Gaston in Beauty and the Beast in a goofy light at the beginning, but you don't see Sharptooth in a goofy light. Mm. Sharptooth mm. is always a monster. He's silent. He doesn't speak. They don't want to humanize him in any way, the way that like Ursula talks and the characters in everything, you know, all these Disney movies, all the Disney villains usually have a humorous moment. I, I see Jafar. Jafar even has a humorous sidekick where right. in these ones, it's just a demon with teeth and is silently coming after you. No, so later in time, they definitely get humorous sidekicks for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a Charles couple of them. N- Charles Nelson Reilly and Dom DeLuise are always there. They're yeah, always like, uh, uh, on, the, on staff, so the, to speak. The uh, rat character of, I forget what it is, Warren T. Rat in yeah. uh, American Tale has a yeah. humorous sidekick. Yeah. But his henchmen are terrifying. I, I think, though, that the, the non-speaking, non-human villain very much shows his connection to Sleeping Beauty. I mean, when you have all of that darkness, all of that abstract, pointed, angular villain from, from, you know, compared to, as you said, Ursula. I mean, Ursula is a jaunty colored and purple, and Mm -hmm. she's, you know, loud and boisterous and kind of has that evil cackle. There's, she's literally a rounded villain as opposed to these (laughs) angular, evil, you know, very, very scary um, villains. Well, and she's also very theatrical. She's like, and I think a lot of the Disney villains from that period are very theatrical. It doesn't change the fact that they're pure evil, especially when you get into like kind of Tarzan area with Clayton, you know, Mm. but I think that when you look at like Ursula and Scar and Jafar, they, they're, those movies are, I think what makes them so powerful is that they're very theatrical. They're very in the way that things are portrayed. And mm-hmm. so it feels it gives it, it it gives it a lot more melodrama. And so you can get a lot more involved in it. When you when I watch uh, I remember watching The Secret of Nim as a kid. And there's the scene where uh, uh, she goes to see the owl. Oh, God. And yeah. when his head turns around and just it's not just the character design. The, the Everything about that scene, the way it's animated is just chilling. 
and you know that she is in the lair of this thing that could just snuff her out without even and would not lose any sleep about it. This is it would not be a thing to him. Just game over. Uh, and at the beginning of yeah. that scene, it actually kills something. There's a yeah, there's these insects that are following the spider that's coming after her that looks like a monster. Insects are terrifying in Bluth movies. And the first introduction of the owl is this claw coming down and scrunching it. Yes, and it squirts out blood like it's in a peck and paw movie. <laughs> well, and his claw is almost as big as she is. Yeah, like yeah. the perspective that's done there because I think that. That is that's a scene that could potentially be done have a very Looney Tunes feel to it sure. because of the way that it's because of the perspective of the shot where she's walking and the bugs are kind of encroaching mm-hmm. on her. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a potential to kind of that be a little bit like dun 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 dun. But it it never feels that way. It definitely feels it's like scary. Even as an adult, yeah. I was just like, "Oh my god!" Well, I think I think that's uh, I think we can just put it under the under dark scary as something that's uh, that's that's kind of kind of unique among them. I'd also say that there are situations that would never find that frequently pop up for Bluth movies that I would knew never seen a Disney movie. For one, the the common recurrence of drowning as a danger, yeah. which is terrifying which is for me now being a parent uh, parent like the idea of Fievel like uh being washed out on the deck of a boat and then you know going into the water and then thinking about thinking about them drowning or even in uh this is I don't even know if you guys got a uh, troll in central park they have this whole scene where they're kind of they're kind of like dilly-dallying around with these two uh these two kid characters one sort of you know nine ten year old kid and the other a toddler and they're just like letting the toddler go towards the water and you're just like oh fuck because yeah. it's so often <laughs> yeah. that characters nearly drown in well, don bluth movies even in a very silly scene in thumbelina when she's out front with all the farm animals mm-hmm. she practically drowns until she like grasps hold of the cow but there, people are like just knocking her right and left and like oops she fell in the water i guess and like it's like nobody's noticing yeah I, it's so interesting because the the thing that uh, thing that I kept f- watching these movies, and some of them I actually didn't see when I was a kid. I keep watching them, and what's fantastic is is that um, Don Bluth. He, someone described that there was a certain way of piecing together m- action in in uh, animated movies, and you'll see this by the fact that um, some of these movies, if you look at the writing credits, some of them have four, six, eight, ten writers on them, and of course, you know, Don Bluth is one of them, and maybe Goldman is one of them. Um, the reason is uh, there's no set script. It's not like a movie. Um, they'll have their characters down. They'll have things written, and the animators will just decide they finished doing one sequence in in linearly and in, in chronological order, and they will just decide what's going to happen in the next sequence. And that's why you end up with weird things like in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, you drop into and a drag this, alligator. Yeah, yes, yeah, a, a, a weird alligator singing. Yeah. Singing songs and and just deciding that he doesn't want to eat them, then being he's worshipped friends. by like weird little native mice. Yeah. It so, was... so those weird non sequiturs are also part of this process, and I think this also that also sort of explains how, why sometimes the there's so sometimes there's non sequiturs uh, that the way they move, and you're just sort of perplexed as to why they made those choices. I remember we had this discussion. We were talking about Hayao Miyazaki and said that he gets described a lot as the Japanese Walt Disney. And I would say that he has much more in common with Don Bluth because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of elements that they bring into the movies, the dark elements, knowing that uh, there's a sense of pathos that he's not afraid. Like, you get a sense that there is an entirely possible ending to an American tale where he doesn't find his family. Sure. And the story is about him finding a new family because he has this whole new cast of characters that he's helped and he has a new home. And maybe that's the lesson. 
Um, you, I could conceivably see that happen. Disney would never go there. Yeah. There is, I mean, there is a real sense while watching The Land Before Time that these dinosaurs could starve to death. Yeah. And that, yes, that's also pretty fucking extreme. Actually, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. They're, they're on the knife's edge of starvation most of the time. It's a bleak right? movie. Yeah. It's not just, in, you know, basically when you said Fievel could go find a new family, you just described uh, uh, Land Before Time, right? Yeah, you know, right. all your parents are right. dead, but now you are your own family. Right. But here's the thing. It's not just drowning, and this is where, where things become really terrifying. It's drowning in fire. He oh, is yeah. incredibly good at fire. You, oh, have, yeah. true. you have Charlie with the hell, you know, the, the, the Charlie, we're going to bring you to hell. You have the earthquake and, the, yeah. you know, the separation, and everything is about fire and that liquid fire. Yeah. That is far more terrifying in that than it ever was in the third Star Wars prequel. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there is. There's, the visual, I, I wanted to say that the visual trademarks is quite is actually quite interesting and I, I wrote down a couple of them. One of them is roiling water and fire mm-hmm. um, which they seem to, he really seems to delight in his animators in doing. Um, twisting paths, backgrounds with stone and dark twisting paths all over the place. Um, shimmering pixie dust. Sparkles! Yeah, sparkles yeah. everywhere! So many sparkles. And it's, just, it's so funny because I, I, I do not think of Disney movies when I think of those particular things, but it seems like part of that is just the delight in doing those extra little sort of Baroque touches in animation that make it a little more special than just a character walking into a scene. Uh, there's scenes with characters walking into a dark, scary tunnel, and these skittering, tiny things come out of the shadows. Seem like they're ready to overwhelm the characters, usually bugs, like yeah. spiders and stuff like that. And usually when you have a lot of characters like Fievel and the characters in Secret of Nim who are literally mice... Uh, those things can be huge. There's a scene in the land, not the land before time, in an American tale where Fievel falls into the sewers and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. There's these bugs that are crawling after him, kind of waiting for him to trip so they can just pile onto him and eat him. And he leaps across something and you see them fall into this chasm to get eaten by this fish down there. And they're all played like these creepy alien creatures. And they fucking crunch. They do. <laughs> they fucking crunch. I remember that. It's not just gulp. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's very visceral. There's a visceral feeling to, to a lot of those scenes. And things die in mm. Bluth movies. Death is a thing that is explicit where in yeah. a lot of Disney movies it's implied. Cinderella's dad is dead, but they never say that. They never say that he's dead. They never say anything other than he, she just happens to live with her stepmother. Mm-hmm. The same thing with a lot of other characters. How many Disney princesses have dead mothers? But they never say it. And even most of the time, with a few exceptions like Scar and Ursula, most Disney villains do this thing that I like to refer to as fall through a cloud. <laughs> that you fall into a dark, tarry abyss off of a building or off a cliff, and you just go through a cloud, and you just are never seen again. There's never that Batman 89 moment with a broken <laughs> body. <laughs> um, in... A Bluth movie, they're dead. We actually get to see in an American tale an Irish wake with a corpse yeah, on a table. That's true. And even the the rich lady who I think it's Madeline Kahn does her voice is like, yeah. Why yep. is there a dead mouse on the table? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean the first line of uh, Secret of Nim is Jonathan Brisby is dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that it's kind of crazy that you would do in a movie that's largely aimed at children is acknowledge that the big elephant in the room exists. Yeah. Yeah. 
Go ahead. There are a couple other visual cues that I noticed, um, or, or visual trademarks, and that is um, the eyeshadowiness of all of the characters, which is kind mm. of a funny thing. It's not mm. meant to be makeup, but a way of characterizing, um, you know, the, the the human characters having eyeshadow and blush, which is mm-hmm. just kind of mm. very whimsical. You look at In All Dogs Go to Heaven, Anne Marie is almost always has you know kind of a purpley periwinkle, um, and one of the things that I I see in terms of like attention to eyes of his characters might be stemming from his time on the rescuers. I heard an interview with Don Bluth and Gary Goldman saying that right before they left, they were, you know, at Disney and they were doing the the rescuers and the main mouse and the rescuers, it's kind of like that taupey color most of the time because he's in shadow. They didn't bother whiting in his eyes. His eyes, the whites of his eyes are the same color as the Mm. whole rest of the mouse fur. Mm. And that was one of the things that was most annoying to him that they said, no, it's too much money to, to white in the eyes of every single cell. And that was one of the motivating factors of no, it doesn't. It doesn't cost too much to go and have real attention to your yeah. real characters' expressive faces. Now, if that's his legacy, though, if that's his legacy, uh, I think he should be applauded. I mean, um, we all save the talk for what his true legacy is for the tail end of the show. But I'll say he used to be applauded because certainly um, in, until you get into the '90s, when he's really doing, he has two studios running at once, and they're putting out a movie like every year and a half. You know, um, uh, the attention to detail is is evident in everything um and he 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 is he is wanting to animate things in a way where uh every frame has magic to it and that brings me to speaking of things that have magic to them in every frame um magnets (laughs) no uh uh this is is often forgot about his work on doing dragon slayer and space ace Mm -hmm. so i'm sure that all of our listeners know this in the early 80s um about actually when the video game crap right before the video game crash is going to happen um and after they had basically failed and went bankrupt because Secret of Nim was a failure, a box office failure, they decided that they were going to animate a video game. But of course, the video game technology, graphics technology didn't exist back then. It was basically Pac-Man and Donkey Kong at that time. They basically made a movie on Laserdisc and... You were, it's like a, it's basically works like a DVD menu essentially is that it's a series of videos strung together and they were timed such that if you hit the right joystick or button at the right time, then the thing, then the movie continues on. Um, so it was kind of a, it was a visual leap forward in terms of what video you would expect in a video game, but it was very limited for what it was as a game, but the characters and the settings being uniquely uh, being uni- uniquely bluth are still fucking fascinating and i they think are. they're i think they're iconic uh, you can't not notice dragon's lair if you go to an arcade especially when these things were brand new i remember going oh my god there's a cartoon in this game and mm. it didn't look like any other game at the time and i saw this in the early 90s i think for the first time is that there was this weird video game cabinet that instead of putting a quarter into it, you had to give it a full dollar to play. Yeah. And the thing with this game, too, is that Dragon's Lair is fucking merciless. Oh, both of them are. You have to know exactly when to move the joystick in the right direction towards the flash on the screen or hit the sword button, because it's just a joystick and a single button. And if you do it wrong, you will see Dirk the Daring die a lot. Right. He dies a lot in these things. And that was kind of the fun of it, is that 
if you got to the certain point where you had memorized this entire game, it's only like 10 minutes long. I just watched all of the videos yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> it's like, this is actually super short, but it's lengthened out by the fact that it's murdering you yes. over and over and over again. And in that way, it, it re- represents like the worst excesses of sort of nickel and diming of the of the arcades. And really, when you think about it, it's not that fun of a game. It's uh, it's where once, you, once you're able to master it, once you're able to get from start to finish, and I never got that far because I never had that much money. Um, once you get to the end of it, it's not fun anymore, and it is its replay value was next to nothing. Um, but I will say the thing that uh, in looking going looking at it from start to finish on on YouTube, um, there are lots of fascinating little animation creative ideas that are happening. He's putting these characters through, but because of the sort of cut and paste nature of the way that the the story moves forward, like it's so jarring, you never get a sense of geography. Um, you know that these are all strung; these things are all strung together and repeated and reversed. So you don't get a really a cohesive sense of a character moving an arc or something like that. It's it's basically just a trick. But the visual ideas are some of them are really awesome. Some it's, of them are amazing. It's amazing because Dirk the Daring doesn't really say anything until Dragon's Lair Two. Yeah, he doesn't have any dialogue. Time warp. Yeah, he doesn't say a lot even in that game too. So it's amazing how expressive the character is and how much personality he has because he kind of looks like Dick Van Dyke as a knight, <laughs> where there's a kind of a ropey kind of quality to him, and he can be both brave and a scaredy cat at the same time. So I, it's a sort of game that I'd much rather watch somebody really good at it play than try to do it myself because the yeah. controls again were unforgiving when anything is brand new. Yeah, it has a tendency not to be user friendly. It's very visually striking. And um, there really isn't a lot there when you watch it. And also the transitions get better from game to game because it's like, you're in a room. You have to do three of these different motions with the stick or hit the button at the right time to move to the next room. And then there's this weird transition thing that's kind of like when they change scenes on the Super Friends. Yeah. Except it's Dirk the Daring peering back and forth, turning from a skeleton into a guy while the background moves around. Yeah. And there's no real connection between one location and the next. No, you're utterly lost. Now is this a break from uh, his his villains? Is there because it seems like the villain here is the challenge itself? Well, there's a villain in Space Ace. There's yeah. Bork, Bort, Bork. Yeah, I know that the, the there's alien. a dragon at the end of, and of a that one, but he's a bit more cartoony than a lot of the ones we're used to seeing. Yeah. I mean, he isn't as monstrous. I think he's going for more of kind of a goofy kind of vibe, but it's not the sort of animation that's necessarily aimed at young kids because it knows that a kid is not going to have enough dollars to make it all the yeah. way through this game. It's also game. not aimed at young kids because I think the 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 female character has oh. like extreme cleavage <clears throat> yes. and very the little clothing. Boobs. Everywhere, and, yeah. it's basically sparkly cleavage that you're yeah. trying to rescue. But I will say that you know, not looking back on it now, now that we're in the era of of uh, Xbox One and PS4, and now the 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 game as a genre has evolved to an extremely sophisticated point. Um, it was an incredible success at the time. In fact, Pioneer could not manufacture enough Laserdisc players to keep up with the demand to put Dragon's Lair machines in arcades. Like that's how popular it was. Um, and of course, that wore off because you really didn't see any laserdisc animated games that weren't from Don Bluth with any sort of success afterwards. So, they were probably just incredibly expensive to make. Yeah. Uh, they cost a lot of money to play. They were really unforgiving in terms of control. Where it was a frustrating experience when. 
when I played it. It's not like with Pac-Man where it's a different thing every game. It's the exact same memorized motions every time. Where every Pac-Man game, even though it's the same maze I'm going through, the same ghosts, things are playing out with AI and happening differently. Where I have a different experience, even if it's fucking hard. And with this one, it's just about memorization, knowing to hit that, and... I remember just playing it a couple times, dying, even in the opening screens where I'm not even part of the story yet. And I just kind of gave up because I don't have that much money. I think I was <laughs> nine. Well, yeah, and you could go and play something that was a lot that you were going to do better at, even marginally better at, for one quarter right. as opposed to right. three or four. Because I remember watching people play Space Ace and and, and Dragon Slayer and, and thinking, oh, I'm going to try this. This looks easy. And then like trying it once and like, this is not easy. I'm never <laughs> doing this again, ever. But I, I mean, you can't... Games are about reward. You know, it's like mm, right. you go back and play Galaga for the thousandth time because you know you can get past that 15th board and yep. finally beat your high score and, you know, get number eight instead of number 10 in your initials. Like, there is none of that. This, like, there's a, there's yeah. a ceiling for skill, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a ceiling and that's it. You've it's a high belt. ceiling. It's again, we're talking about using nunchucks. You got to be really good. <laughs> to do it well, you have to be amazing. And underneath all of that amazing is 99% failure. <laughs> it's in a lot of ways, I'd say that Space Ace and Dragon's Lair are basically like the Japanese game show of video games. That it's not so much about rewarding um, success, it's about punishing failure <laughs> over oh. and over again. <laughs> all right. And with that, let's, let's, let's take our first break, and we'll be right back with Don Bluth. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new. Hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back with Radio versus the Martians. This month's panel is on Don Bluth. Now, I want to move forward in history. We've certainly spent a lot of time talking about what I think are the golden oldies, your American tale, your land before time, and your secret of Nim. Um, but by the time you cross the boundary into the 90s, you start seeing uh, Don Bluth at his most prodigious. Um, and I think this is largely due to the fact of his box office successes with uh, his Spielberg collaborations with uh, Land Before Time and American Tale, which were such enormous successes that they put Disney to shame. But by the time you got to All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is a mess of a movie, it is an incredible mess of a movie, um, that ran headlong against Little Mermaid. And of course, that was the that was the Disney renaissance that we talk about. You move into the 90s and then you start seeing a very quick very precipitous decline in quality. Um, and the first one is Rockadoodle, which uh, I don't know if anyone was able to locate Rockadoodle on this. So Rockadoodle is a half 
live action half animated feature about a rooster who is basically Elvis Presley who has the magic power to make the sun come up but uh he loses he he's shamed going away from the farm and the a farm family is uh is plagued by a a uh is plagued by heavy rains and they're drowning and magic allows their youngest son to become a kitty cat and uh, join the farm animals in a trip to the city to go find the king, who is the rooster, to come and bring the sun back. And it is a hot mess. And here's why I think it's a hot mess, is that the (laughs) things that fail the most in Don Bluth's movies, with the exception, I will grant, of American Tale, are his attempt to do musical numbers. Hmm. I, I, I've seen this movie a long time ago. I couldn't obtain a copy of it again. But I remember one thing really stuck with me is that the idea is that they need him to bring the sun back, which is why they're looking for him. And the movie gives you two different answers about whether he actually brings the sun back or not. One of them being that I think it was the thing that drove him away in the first place. He was, didn't really have the power. He didn't have the power all along that finding <laughs> out that the sun is going to come up with or without him and that his sense of identity is shattered. Yeah. And then to find out later, no, he actually does need And it's like, well, what the fuck is it? Is it, is it that way or the other? Is he a magical rooster that the entire uh, cycle of life on Earth is reliant on? Or is he a delusional guy? <laughs> and they never really answer that. They like They break him with a sense of reality and like okay that's what this movie's about because if there's anything that bluth likes to do it's like hey kids you want to see some ugly bits of adult reality where you have to learn a hard lesson and then you have to bounce back from that and going no i'm still a cool person even though this magical reality i built around myself is dispelled and it's okay but oh no 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 at the end he really does have magic sun raising powers (laughs) and it just well i mean this is the, the concept of this was clearly by the uh the name Rockadoodle is a take on Rockabilly, and so it's a, it's a, it's specifically it's trying for him to focus on. And I know in reading the biography of Don Bluth, um, before he was an animator, or in between that period between he him leaving his internship at Disney and going on his Mormon uh, mission and coming back, he liked to uh, put on plays with his brother, and he he kind of accumulated a gaggle of musicians and actors who would do musical numbers together. So it's always been part of his. Uh, part of his sort of area of interest to uh, to put on plays and to have musicals and music being uh, songs being a part of these. Um, but I honestly think that uh, that some of the worst parts of his movies are his his, his attempt to make things into a musical. And, th- and where where he's at his best, like say Secret of Nim, is where no character needs to break out in song. There is a song that happens by you know a female singer. There's a song, but when he when all, the characters need to be this Disney musical-esque sort of vaudevillian smash-up is when it's cringeworthy and embarrassing. I think his uh, folks that he got to collaborate on on scoring his pieces, he's much more successful with the score, yeah. which really adds to the sparkle and the fire and the shimmer and the turning the sky yellow at dawn. That is reflected in the score. And I agree with you, Casey, that for the most part, it's jarring to hear, uh, you know, the, the the weird musical numbers that he has. They're not super catchy. There's not a, there's a lot of like exposition that happens in the songs yeah. that you really need to pay attention to. And a lot of the words have like these little spoken lines to them. And it, it just ends up muddling things and confusing things. 
with the exception of American Tail, because there are no cats in America, and the yeah. streets are paved with cheese. And- <laughs> no, it's very it's very memorable. I mean, with the exception of American Tail, because those, at least the choruses to those those two songs, are very catchy. They're very memorable, and all the rest are forgettable. The thing that's really interesting that he did with an American Tail is that the main musical number, this would have been a great opportunity for them to bring in alternative singing voices for both Five and they, Sister. Which they did in Anastasia. Yeah, but yes. they didn't hear. Then and that's what I think what makes it really work. They, they can't hit that high note. They squeak on oh, the high they're, note. Oh, they're little children. Yeah. And it's kind of like the same way when you watch the old Charlie Brown specials where they get real children to do the voice of children. Mm-hmm. It happens that way in there. That that uh Fievel and Anya are children doing the voice of children. They're children doing a musical number and there's a lot of heart to it and that's what makes it really work because mm-hmm. it's them clearly hitting the high range of, of their vocal abilities but it doesn't matter because it's not a professional person hitting that and failing. It's a child and it's about a child yearning for something. It's not about a child suddenly being Pavarotti. <laughs> <laughs> or Elvis. Yeah, uh, we, we completely glossed over this fact but speaking of real child actors Will Wheaton in Secret of Nim. Yes. Will motherfucking Wheaton. Yeah, it's that's pretty all, crazy. That's all I got to say. Other, other one of Miss um, Brisby's children was Shannon Doherty. <gasps> oh what? yeah, yeah. Yep. So there's a couple people that you would recognize later doing the voice of of her kids. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, what I love is this again use of real children, and you see that a lot in Land Before Time. All of the dinosaurs, with the exception, I think, of Petrie. Petrie is an adult, uh, is a child. They're well, chi- and he he used a lot of repeat voice actors throughout his movie. So mm-hmm. Fievel was also one of the voices in Troll in Central Park. Yeah. Um, the the girl who uh, was Anne Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven was also Ducky. Ducky. Yeah. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's got that continuity going that he's able then to he's create. Got, he's got that. a stable, obviously, because yeah. I mentioned Dom DeLuise and Charles Nelson Riley. So he has a group of actors that he likes working with, and it's not like Disney where you're out on your ass, you know, for the next feature. Well, but, you know? and yeah. you can create that rapport with your actors to create some of that authenticity that unfortunately falls down in those musical numbers. Yeah, it's yeah. funny because uh, nothing author- is worse than Dom DeLuise having to carry the whole the musicals yeah. in a movie. But the the ch- the children actors and the authenticity, like we were talking about. Kindergarten cop on podcast to La Vista Baby and saying that there's a scene with a lot of children talking and you can immediately tell the difference between scenes where the children are reading something written for them by an adult and the scenes where children are just kind of riffing and telling their own stories. And I get the sense that Bluth is somebody that lets them go a little bit and gives them some lines, but gives them a lot of freedom to find their own way to do that line. And that's what makes it much more organic and makes it a lot less robotic. And you don't get these like because there's so many bad child actor performances. I think Jake Lloyd, I'm I'm sorry he's had a shitty life since that Star Wars episode keep, 1 keep came out. Keep logging that horse. But he's really <laughs> terrible. He's the, yeah. I mean, say yeah. what you will about, you know, Jar Jar Binks, Jake Lloyd is the worst part of Star Wars episode 1. Yeah. And it's because he's given this robotic dialogue. And I think this would have been a great opportunity to give this actor an opportunity to Stretch a little bit more and add a little bit more and make him feel like a real kid rather than like a robot who says, yippee! Well, alternatively, you have All Dogs Go to Heaven, which um, I, which the presence of, you know, then I don't think he was a superstar then, but Burt Reynolds um, was basically due to his friendship with Dom DeLuise. And because of his sort of star power, most of the dialogue that, oh, I'm forgetting the main character's name. Charlie. Yes, Charlie. Yes, Charlie's, most of Charlie's dialogue, him and Dom DeLuise, um, a lot of that was improvised. A lot of that was, we'll just get them in a room and they can they can work it on out. And it's 
terrible. It is utterly terrible. I That was definitely one of those realizations of going back. I remember seeing that movie in the dollar theater, because there's a lot of movies in the dollar theater when I was a kid, and thinking it was amazing. Uh, oh, my God, that movie is a hot mess. Well, the, with All Dogs Go to Heaven, so much of that improvised dialogue, if that's what it is, um, or if they were in the writer's room, because I think All Dogs Go to Heaven is one with like eight writers for the screenplay yes. <laughs> and the yes. story development. Yep. You know, a, a lot of it is just sort of adult banter, but not in the same way that, uh, of Robin Williams doing Genie. You know, it's it's not like, mm-hmm. let's throw in a little bit so that this is a palatable movie for both kids and adults and they can like it on two different levels. This was a distraction. Yeah, you touched on it right there. Um, I really don't like most of his movies as an adult. In fact, I uh, you know, unlike what the thing you can say positively about Pixar movies is that Pixar, are they're very good at creating compelling stories for children and adding enough either a sort of visual dazzle or characterization or jokes for the parents to be entertained as well. Um, most of Don Bluth movies, I do not have that. I actually, I actually found myself really liking a lot of them watching them again. Mm. Secret of Nim probably being the one I liked the most. Yeah. And finding that scary bits were still scary to me as an adult, that bits that are trying to be heartfelt are genuinely heartfelt. And I think a lot of it is that there's certain lines that Disney does not cross and most animations do not cross. And you mentioned earlier, Becky, the thing with eyes. And I think that he really went in that other direction, really putting a lot of emphasis on characters' eyes in his movies. And one thing they do is there's scenes where people have tears in their eyes. And there's that little bit of red around the edge, hmm. which is something they usually don't do. Usually we get the single tear down the cheek and you look just the same as you did before. Characters in Don Bluth movies will ugly cry. <laughs> <laughs> Littlefoot ugly cries several times in the movie. Fival ugly cries. And it actually makes it feel that much more like, oh my God, this is real. This isn't just a moment to try to make me feel sad. It feels like the same reaction I have when they make a child actually cry in a movie. Um, you're just like, oh God, oh God, I'm sorry, kid. <laughs> um, you feel that way about Fival in several parts of that mm. movie. Hmm. Some of the things, Casey, that I think contribute to it feeling messy and muddled is that attention to ugliness, is that there's real tears that are going on, is that in the background, there's real people of a non-sanitized sort of look. There's right. there's women, there's men, there's fat people, there's skinny people, there's haggard right. people, there's people smoking, there's people with cleavage, there's little yeah. kids wearing jaunty dresses. And it's it's a real like variety of of um, existence that happens, whether they're characterized as animals um, or whether they're humans in the background, like an Anastasia. I mean, in, in these big scenes where you have lots of people in the background, you have people that even though there was, this, a, a, I would argue, a level of, of uh, sanitizing that went on with Anastasia to make it more like the palatable Disney things with sort of the weak musical numbers, um, there's there's still a visual variety that reflects existence that makes it, I think, some of the things that, that gives it a messy feel to it. It's non-cohesive because life isn't cohesive no. and life is, it's organic. is no. messy and has weird distracting banter that goes on. I suppose, but... Oh, go ahead, Joe. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I find myself agreeing more than you because I, so I could not bring myself to watch um, Land Before Time because I have 
children that watched the sequels incessantly. <laughs> right. But I also don't, don't didn't fault uh, Don Bluth and your the Goldman sequels? with the no, sequels. No, no, the sequels no, are I, not I, his no, no, problem. No, I know, but it's yeah. it's one of those association things. I I will I will take full responsibility to that. But I I found myself like stricken with a fear that <laughs> I would not be able to watch like an American Tale or Secret of Nim as an adult and still have that same enjoyment because like I walk around even even the sequel to American Tale is something that like I loved when I was younger. And we I just watched I, I ended up watching All Dogs Go to Heaven and Anastasia. And I was watching Anastasia with my 14-year-old today before I came up here. And I'm like, this is just so sanitized. It's so lacking of any of the like the grisly bits that I remember being in American Tale. Even as like when I would watch it as a teenager, like there is uh, there is a grime in those movies. There is this feeling that like this is the world we live in. Yeah. This is the world yeah. where mice sometimes get eaten by owls yeah. and sometimes they get plowed under because yeah. the farmer needs to, you know, and they get eaten by cats. And this is like a cold and yeah. uncaring world. And we're just going to show you this one little spark in it. But we're never going to let you forget that for that spark, there are like a hundred others that you don't get to see. And Anastasia <laughs> doesn't feel that way. It feels very like, oh, there's a musical number now. Okay, let's 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 start with the forest romance now. And then it's like, chasing Disney more than making yeah, Disney chase absolutely. Let's let's absolutely. talk about that. So the '90s, I think that you know they start off really really poorly, and they they never really pull themselves up. But you get to Anastasia, and he has his hit again. Yeah, that's where he. Uh, that's where he's actually able to pull himself up from box office failure after box office failure. Um, but it doesn't feel like a Don Bluth movie very much. Can I have it's- a defense of Anastasia? Please. Sure. <laughs> okay. Did, I mean, despite the fact that it whitewashed the Russian Revolution, the Communist Revolution, <laughs> by being a, bar- a part of Rasputin's black magic. Yes. That's yes. what hardens the Russian people's heart and makes communism That's possible. a spit in the face of the proletariat. <laughs> it is. It's terrible revisionist history. I'm so history. glad you said something about that. It's awful. Because I, I put it on and I had to go into my bedroom to get something. And as I'm coming around, they're talking about Rasputin. And I was like, that was exactly the thought process I had is like, is this what? Is this how we're telling that particular story? All of that granted. All of that granted. <laughs> um, Anastasia came out when, uh, you know, it's it's the building of the Disney franchise, the Disney princess franchise, before they then recalled it Disney princess. But, right. you know, it was the first time that, that uh, you had a female character that their prime motivation wasn't to necessarily get Prince Charming. And here's the thing. Yes, forced romance with Anastasia and Dimitri, less forced than any other Disney princess. I'll there was an that. actual there was an actual like unfolding of a relationship between them. They're friends, they bicker, they are going on an adventure together. They're trying to mutually solve this problem. She's a little bit naive, finds out that he's kind of a trickster, has this ruse, you know, but but there's something that unfolds and develops there and it's not instantaneous. And Dimitri doesn't save her. I, yeah, that's, yeah. I was actually going to, yeah, that was one thing and, I was impressed with is that she never feels like the romance does kind of at the end feel a little bit more organic, but she never feels like she doesn't have or is written to have agency. Like she's never written to feel like she's just kind of 
at the mercy of whatever man is kind of like helping Contrast her out. Contrast to Thumbelina. Talk about hot oh, mess. God. The previous oh, one that God. had a female lead in it, okay? Oh, God. So, okay, you're moaning about Thumbelina. Did you guys see it? I did not see it. It took me it. like four tries to get uh, through it. So this is, this is one of the downsides of being a parent. I love being a parent, and uh, I, I have a, uh, you know, I have a daughter, but she fucking adored that goddamn movie. I'm so sorry. And, How oh many years God. of therapy did it take to undo the I, terrible well, messaging of Thumbelina? I, I, I still drink about it to this day. Let me just tell you, I, owe, I have a bottle on hand at pretty much all times just in case she remembers that fucking movie exists and decides that she wants to watch it. So I assume that your daughter was not kidnapped by a series of, of grunty, evil uh, uh, creatures that alternately, you know, bandied her back and forth for the purposes of either wanting to make her dance at their ugly parties or wanting to marry her for no reason whatsoever. Not yet, thank God. <laughs> not not yet. Uh, it, it was it's probably be- that between that one and a troll in Central Park, it those they just scarred my soul forever. Okay, but contrast again my defense of Anastasia. Contrast the characterization of a female lead in Thumbelina to Anastasia. Well, but I would argue, and I did, didn't I just argue, that it feels like the least Don Bluth movie that there is. It does feel a bit more like he's re- reacting to Disney. Because yeah. Disney, it's weird because Disney was in a little bit of a slump at that point. I think Mulan was the last major hit they put out. And after that, I don't even remember. There's like this big wilderness area where Disney was putting stuff out, with the exception uh, of a couple of really good ones. Like I really did like uh, Emperor's New Groove, which I saw way after the fact because I was dating a girl at the time who was a massive fan of it. And hmm. I'll watch anything with John Goodman. <laughs> and uh, but it was weird. There's a big wilderness area where, yeah, of course, there's a Judy Dench Roseanne Barr cow movie where they. <laughs> that's a real thing that was happening during that time. God and damn it. Nobody remembers any of those oh, wait, things. That was the is that one. A home on the range, or yeah. it is. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So there kind of are these two eras of. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that back up because that's another one I'd almost completely exercised from my mind. Yeah, <laughs> it'll now... never completely go away. It's kind of like the internet; it exists somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like there are these two wilderness eras, these two moments where Disney is in a bit of a slump. And those are the times where Bluth can really capitalize, mm. when they're doing stuff that is pretty weak, that is not really crowd-pleasy. The Disney Renaissance was over, but the, the original Disney Renaissance, which you could say lasted for decades, was over, and they were doing stuff like Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company, which are not bad movies. They're mm-hmm. good movies, but there isn't the same nostalgia for them. When I was talking about- Well, they're uh, not timeless. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about, I mean, it's Billy Joel playing a dog, and it's it very much feels like it's of its time. Well, and you have visually that being dated to the late 80s. Yeah. I mean, yes. like, the, the hairstyles on the dogs are feathered 80s hair. That, yeah. that, that's yeah. not going to be timeless. I, I it's have, a time capsule movie. I have a huge amount of love for Oliver and Company just because <laughs> I, I think it hit me right at the perfect time. I was, like, my dad's a piano player, so I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. Um, a huge Billy Joel from 20 years ago fan. I'm going to clarify that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, but I agree that there's, there's really nothing about that mood. Like, it doesn't stand up to what came before it or what came after it. But I remember mentioning to people that I knew in my life that I was prepping for this because I work at a used bookstore and I'm able to just check movies out on DVD. And people notice I was checking out a bunch of these movies, like Secret of Nim, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And I would get real reactions from coworkers, mm. like, oh my God, 
I love Land Before Time. And I mean, there I just see this gushing, like there's this dam holding their childhood nostalgia back, and it just burst. And people get really excited. And then there'd be other ones like, oh, okay. I mean, there no. If you mentioned that the Great Mouse Detective exists, and I like the idea of doing a mouse movie about you know Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. basically. Nobody remembers it. That there are movies that just don't have that nostalgic power behind them. Mm-hmm. And Disney was sort of at that place with Anastasia where they weren't putting out anything that's part of our natural conversation about animation. That we don't talk about things like Lilo and Stitch, really. We don't really talk about Emperor's New Groove. That There are people who have their own love of those movies, but it's like that particular person grew up with that movie and it's theirs personally. But it's not like The Little Mermaid where everyone, I mean, I have had so many times at various jobs that a song from the fucking Little Mermaid will start being sung by multiple female coworkers. <laughs> It'll just happen. And it's like, it's like what Frozen is. Frozen is a completely different thing from Emperor's New Groove. It is mm-hmm. a juggernaut. And it may be the beginning of a new renaissance, but Bluth kind of needs that Disney slump to find an opening. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Lilo and Stitch. You mentioned Mulan. You mentioned Emperor's New Groove. And those were Disney attempts to sort of um, showcase cultures and yeah. characters that were non-white, non-European. Yeah, there, aren't many, I, there are not many. There are hardly any black characters in any Don Bluth movies at all. In fact, I think the one that I counted is the alien character that Tone Loke plays in Titan A.E. And he's not even a black guy. He's an alien. There's immigrant mice on the on the mutual immigrant ship in Five West. There are no black people. Though. Well, they're mice. They're mice. But they're, they're, the characterization is not They can't be black. <laughs> no, there really are. There's a mom that's like that has like a, a black Caribbean accent, um, let alone that the- Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Um, there's- Whatever. Forget that the ship left from Germany. <laughs> but it's-, it's <laughs> Because they're basically- they're, they're they're celebrating all of the immigrant experience of the late 1850s. But here's here's what I was going to say: that all the Mulan, the Emperor's New Groove, and the Lilo and Stitch was Disney's attempt to feature as the main story non-white, non-European characters. Don Bluth films had no trouble incorporating and acknowledging that those multiple non-white, non-wasp um, cultures were all existing all at the same time. Sometimes it got really super offensive, yeah. like a bubble lip alligator. Like, seriously, yeah. really? Really that happened? Um, or uh, or the sapos guapos in <laughs> in uh, Thumbelina. Oh, she gets God. kidnapped by, uh... by basically a, a, a caricaturized uh, Mexican frog that are like evil and gross. Uh, to be fair, some of them I assume are good people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Donald. Oh, God. Wrong Don. Don Blue. Oh, wrong wrong God. Don Mike. But but at the same time you had um, in Anastasia an acknowledgement of that the fact that this was Russian just happened to be incidental. The fact that Fievel's family was Jewish happened to be incidental. The fact that, you know, you had Tony the the little uh you know, the little Italian American yeah. mouse and then the little Irish mouse, that that's sort of incidental they don't draw attention to it whereas disney is saying all right we have to make a non-white film um so yes there is a there is an absolute dearth of um of positively portrayed uh uh african-american experience characters in don bluth films i would say um and and that that is a, a downside um but the the nature of just saying like this is a culture that exists it's incidental to the story they happen to be this and we're telling the story I, I think that if American Tale didn't exist, we wouldn't even be able to have any caveats to this conversation. I think it would just be like whitewashed the whole way 
but that and, and I, I contend that that American Tale is different almost wholly because of the influence of of, uh, of uh, Steven, Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Yes. <laughs> He's wanting to tell his grandfather's story, right? That was actually his his grandfather's nickname growing up was yeah. Fievel. His and... Yiddish name is Fievel and his Americanized name is Philip. Yeah. Oh, Philly. That's how that's how Fievel gets called Philly yeah. from his little American uh... That's what I kind of love about that movie, but it's again, I think the best way to do that sort of that sort of cultural outreach is that just have a character who is of a culture and just rather than assume that you have to market it towards that specific culture, just assume, Hey, this is a character that every kid can identify with. Every kid knows what it'd be like to lose their parents. Every kid knows what it's like. And it is sort of about the American experience. And it's about going to this place that is fucking loud and scary Mm -hmm. and huge and finding other people that are trying to survive that are big and scary and huge. And the other thing that comes up in this movie, that you'd never get in Disney again. And this was something that you see over and over again, those sort of ugly adult realities. Like the character of Honest John in mm-hmm. American the, Tale. The drunk. He is constantly drunk. <laughs> and taking credit for other people's victories. But he's a political boss. He is a corrupt T- political Tammany boss. Tammany Hall. He's from yeah. Tammany Hall. He is totally referencing actual old school political bosses. Yeah. And you see him write down the name of a dead mouse <laughs> who's at, he's at the wake of in his little book. And he's just like, oh, is he a voter? Well, he is now. <laughs> and it just, and, but yet. Honest John is not a bad guy. Yeah, that's Honest true. John is a good guy who helps him at the yeah. end to try to get rid of the cats. Uh, th- this is this is apropos of nothing except that it's American Tale. Um, I actually saw two, not one, but two direct animation references to um, Robin Hood that were done in uh, in in uh, uh, was it both? Were they both in American Tale? Yes. So one was biting the leg. So remember, mm-hmm. there's the Prince John getting his leg bit in in uh, Robin Hood. Um, Fievel does that to the, the the rat cat guy. Oh, warranty he, rat. Yeah, warranty rat. He he bites him on the leg, and then later they they have their giant the Minsk mouse that has fireworks shooting everywhere. Where there's a part where one of the cats is being raced away, and he sort of like does this like pull your skirt up and let the let the fireworks go through your legs. Oh, That's yeah. also in Robin Hood. Yeah. He's directly pulling stuff like the scenes were exactly I would bet you they were so close like frame to frame from Robin Hood which he worked on. Actually that that scene you mentioned the giant mouse uh, that is a thing that plays out in Land Before Time as well which other moment where monsters are scared away by the main characters disguising themselves as a giant monster. <laughs> But uh, right. getting getting back to sort of ugly adult realities, I actually wrote down a list of things that come up in Don Bluth movies that you would never see in a Disney film. Um, indentured servitude. Oh. Sweatshops. Human trafficking. <laughs> corrupt political bosses. The mafia. The exploitation of immigrants. Starvation. Images of dog hell. <laughs> we had hyena hell. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... interdinosaur racism. So mm. there's all of these things that they would just never bring up, or they'd just paper over it. Actually, seeing a corpse at a funeral, for instance. Yeah, yeah. These are things you just don't do, and that mixed with the fact that people are sort of unusual looking and organic looking and weird looking, even when they're not bad guys is a big deal in a lot of these movies. I would say that without Land Before Time, you wouldn't have had Lion King. I mean, Mm. you wouldn't have Mm. had that death, 
that, you know, probably still for a bunch of people that saw it, you know, when they were age five through through 12, still probably Mufasa's death. <laughs> five through 20? You mean? Five Smarts. through 20. It's still like you see, you, if you watched it first time when you were a kid and now you watch it as a grown up, it still is like, dad, 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 dad get up. With his but paw. It's, oh, right. awful. But, yeah. but you wouldn't have had that if you if you hadn't had Littlefoot losing, you know, his family. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have much time, but I really want to mention where um, his journey comes to an end. I need to correct Mike. Oh. Indentured servitude. Dumbo. Dumbo's mom. Oh. oh. Yeah. That's a racist movie. Was, it is. Terrible <laughs> depiction yes. of black people. Uh, <laughs> that is a racist movie. <laughs> oh, by the way, in Dumbo, you know the crows that help Dumbo and teach him the whole thing with a feather and getting past the obvious racism elements of that? Yes. Uh, you know who? what the name in the script of the lead crow is? No. Jim Crow. Yep. <laughs> no. Yes. No. His name is Jim Crow. All right. All right. Enough on that. So the... Uh, the, the thing that was the nail in the coffin for Don Bluth, the thing that killed him, made him shutter his studio, finally his Arizona studio, 2000's Titan AE. Mm. So this was a this was clearly clearly something that existed in the uh, in the great the very fertile sci fi movie period of the post of the late 90s, which uh, brought us The Matrix, Johnny Mnemonic. I don't know. Dark City? So, something else with Dark Keanu Reeves in it. No, uh, but it was, uh, I remember being incredibly excited for Titan AE, and it was pretty bold to make a, in a sci-fi story that wasn't heavy metal into an animated movie. Obviously, that's the only other one that I can think of at the top of my head, or Final Fantasy Spirits Within, I guess. Um, but it sort of bridged that gap between 3D and 2D, because you did have computer-generated elements that were used not very well in Titan AE. Um, it's... It's... I understand why it's his last feature film. I understand why it represents the end. And to me, it's partially because it's that era where Disney, you know, right before Disney bought Pixar, around the time Disney bought Pixar, where they're basically conceding 2D animation doesn't exist anymore. Mm. All, 3D animation is the future. I think you can still do it. I think that Miyazaki has sort of proved that. And I think Miyazaki did a better job than Titan Eve marrying 2D and 3D if you look at, say, Princess Mononoke. Yeah. But, uh, you but can I do think, it. I think we have to separate um, the the two animation from the two countries because there will always be 2D animation in Japan because it's just something that they hold dear. It's a it's a it's a it's a well developed genre that they like that adults will that adults will go see. And in this country and throughout most of the rest of the world, 3D animation is where it's at is where is what brings people into the theater. Um, and Titan A.E. was like I said, it was their attempt to tr- sort of reconcile these two worlds for Don Bluth to continue his crusade of keeping 2D animation alive. But, um, you know, people didn't see it. People didn't respond to it. And how would you guys think about Titan A.E.? I, I remember going to see Titan A.E. And I, I mean, I didn't I enjoyed it, but it wasn't. I mean, it kind of exists in this weird place where there there really wasn't you you had you had the Matrix. What the was the Matrix? Before? The year before it was the year before, right? It was yeah. ninety nine. Yeah. So that just kind of after that, it, it was like you really had to raise the bar. And I, I I appreciated what he was trying to do, and I thought he had a pretty decent cast because I remember like somebody told me to go see Titan AE. Because at that point I was twenty three, right? And I, 
I I knew I had a bunch of friends that worked at movie theaters, so I didn't. This is like a four year span in my life where I never paid to see the to see movies. Nice. So I went and saw that. I went and saw Treasure Planet. I went and saw like. You know, all these movies that I probably would not have paid for. I don't know that I would have paid to see Titan A.E. But I don't remember being it, it being egregiously bad. I think it's just something that kind of came out at a time where it couldn't... With animation, you really have to capture the public imagination, like Frozen did, which annoys me to no end because I don't think Frozen is a very good movie. But I think that it it caught something, and that's that's it. Like... Now Disney may have another resurgence that isn't Pixar related because I mm. think Pixar is really where the eggs are now. Well, they're still they're just aping Pixar though. Come yeah, exactly. Well, Come and on. that's that's the thing. But it's got none of the. It feels very much like, you know, if Pixar is like your local pizzeria, then Frozen was like DiGiorno. You know, it's like <laughs> it apes all the good things, but it's really just not nearly as good. Mm. Mm. Uh, and and that's kind of the thing is like I think. You know, he. I can see him going into this, going, "This is going to be huge. This is going to be the next stage." Yeah. We're going to, because you'd already kind of seen it a little bit. Disney was starting to use like digital backgrounds, I think, in yep. like Beauty and the Beast yeah. and stuff like that, and yep. Aladdin. So it wasn't unheard of at that point, but to mash it up like that, I think that was the first time it had been done on that scale. I think so too. And I, I just he took a gamble and he lost. I don't think yeah. it was that the movie was bad. I just didn't. It, it wasn't at the right time. Yeah. I have something that's a little bit embarrassing, I guess, to admit. Titan 80, it came out in 2000. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, just um, starting college. And um, I didn't know any girls that liked sci-fi. I didn't have any girls around me. None of my social group, no one of my friends. My mom and I would watch, you know, Star Trek till the cows come home. Like, it doesn't matter. But, but uh, you know, I, I hadn't yet really begun seriously consuming science fiction. And many actual science fiction people that are quite literate in it would argue that maybe I, don't, I still don't. But... Um, you know, I think I was I was twenty when I finally read Ender's Game, and I was like, mm. you know what? No, this is this is fine and fun, and I, I just didn't have a lot of exposure to it, so I never saw it. I never saw Titan A.E., um, and I didn't really see a reason to go see it. It seemed like it was okay. It's a cartoon, but I, I think I kind of got it mixed up with Treasure Planet at the same time. Yeah, you know, Treasure Planet was time. a couple years later, yeah. so um, yeah, it was obviously Disney had the same thought too, right? It's like. We need to do a sci-fi animated movie. So you know? what what I've seen is that Titan A.E. really suffered from a failure to um, correctly or aptly market to whoever it wanted to, to market to. And I would say that, yes, everything that I experienced with regards to Titan A.E. would verify that. Who, who was the movie for? At the time that uh, that animated films were mostly for for kids plus their parents, there was no indication that this had jokes that were palatable and enjoyable for parents that had didn't have really you know the big star names you know associated with it. Matt Damon, Drew Barrymore, yeah. He's, but but those are not those are not uh, those, those were kind bring... of like teen idols at the time. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, and who it's, who is it's it an for? Adult, it is an adult movie. It is not a kid movie. And were there many animated films that were primarily for teens and adults, I think it would have been much better if it had been appropriately marketed to, you know, age 12 through 22. Yeah. Um, it could have been the thing that would have hooked me, uh, you know, instantaneously. I Maybe I would have loved it. But 
no one, you know, said maybe it was th- that there was no social media at the time. Maybe if mm. social media had been there, well, maybe if cons had been a thing, maybe if the Internet had been readily available with all the wikias for individual little things, it would have been able to uh, have people glom onto it. more. It, it was a Fox. Uh, it was a Fox movie. So it would be Fox marketing it. So it, it could have if it succeeded or failed, it succeeded or failed in to Fox's fault. Yeah. Mike. I still haven't seen Tate Na'i, not for okay. lack of trying. And I remember <laughs> skipping it when it came out. It was coming out in a sort of a black hole of my movie-going experience. It wasn't that I didn't watch animated movies. It was that in the year 1998, I stopped working at my high school job, which was at a movie theater. And like Joe was saying, you have so much condensed time of being able to watch anything for free. Like if it was summer, I was bored, it was hot out. I could go to any movie I wanted to for free, and at the very least, even if it sucked, it didn't cost me a dime. I got Mm -hmm. free popcorn, and it was air-conditioned. So I would see all sorts of things between 96 and 98. I mean, I saw Call the Conqueror in theaters. I saw (laughs) Wishmaster, for Christ's sake. Those are fucking awful. But you didn't lose anything but time. Titan AE just didn't squeak in under the radar where I would have seen it if I'd seen it for free. And I don't know, maybe I was in that mindset of when you're in your late teens, early 20s, and you think you're just too cool to watch an animated movie. Mm. I mean, The Matrix was coming out at that time. And uh, I don't know, I guess it's... it's Tarzan, I think, was around the time, too. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely post-Disney Renaissance. So I don't think there was a lot of buzz for anything animated coming out at that time. It may have been a key time for Bluth to strike, and maybe it just wasn't happening for him. Mm. Well... Bluth's run ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Okay, <laughs> we're going to be back with the uh, high point, low point. We'll see you in a few. Superman, Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel, Firestorm, The Crimson Avenger, Batman, Halo, Guy Gardner, The Sandman, Shadow Lass, Dollman, The Star-Spangled Kid, The Flash, The Phantom Stranger, Power Girl, Hawkman, Fury, The Challengers of the Unknown, Nightwing, The Whip, Johnny Thunder, The Suicide Squad, Dead Man, The Spectre, Warlord, Amazing Man, Our Man, Adam Strange, Doctor Occult, The Doom Patrol, Captain Comet, Creep, Green Lantern, Uncle Sam, The Guard, Batgirl, Dr. Mid-Jonah Hex, Black Cop, The Manhunter, The Guardians of the Florida, Blue Devil, Dr. Fate, The Legion of Super, The Secret Origins Podcast, covering every issue of DC's Secret Origins comic from the 1980s. Hosted by Ryan Daly and a multitude of guests from the podcast and blogging community. Secret Origins Podcast. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right. Welcome back to Radio vs. the Martians panel on Don Bluth. It's time for High Point, Low Point. It's where we go to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the barrel. This time we're going to start with you, Joe Preddy. What's your low point for Don Bluth? I think we already talked about it. I, I think it has to be. I, I, I've been thinking about this. It's either, for me personally, it's either Thumbelina or a troll in Central Park. Because those movies just. I mean, aside from the issues we already spoke about in Thumbelina, they're just bad. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no, uh, you know, wonder. There's no beauty. It's just. It feels like everything is done by rote. It's like. 
It's like he he was like doing a paint by numbers. It's like okay, this uh, let's do this beat here. We'll have a musical number. Then we'll have this beat, this beat, this beat. Musical number, musical number. Beat, beat, beat. Done. I, I it makes me wonder about that period of time uh, whether or not those were done with an eye to it's going to be on the VHS market, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, and it, that's exactly right. what they feel like, and it just you know it's just kind of hollow. And I I think that. I understand that you kind of have to, like, you know, you were trying to compete with Disney at this point uh, on a level that you just were not, you know, once Little Mermaid happens, it's game over. Right. If you're not Disney, then you are the other guys. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, they're just so, they could have been better. You know, (laughs) you really could have done something interesting. Looking at, like, Secret of Nim and American Tale, you could have done something really cool with Thumbelina. Especially Thumbelina, because considering your audience, you know, uh, you know, you've already written really dynamic characters in the past, and then you just kind of have this pastiche, and she's just like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just bad, it's just bad. Okay. I I I cannot. I, I, it's it's almost to the point where I just if I talk about it anymore, I'm going to start remembering more of those movies. You cannot abide. To. I understand. I cannot abide. I understand. Okay, Mike. What about you? Low point for Don Bluth. <clears throat> um, this isn't so much the low point, but this is the final straw. Uh, it's the Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid was the final thing that kind of killed Don Bluth as a marketable competition to the juggernaut that is Disney. Sure. Um, they came out on the same day in 1989 as All Dogs Go to Heaven, and this had been after two movies in a row, An American Tale and then Land Before Time, that had also opened on the exact same day as another um, movie that Disney was putting out. The last one, Land Before Time, came out on the exact same day as Oliver and Company and Mm. beat it. I mean, you really think about how insane that is, that Disney is a juggernaut. Disney can afford to go like a decade without any hits. And they have. They go where they just kind of, they exist. And what do they say in the second Matrix movies? There are levels of existence they're willing to accept. (laughs) (laughs) And they can survive it. You can knock them down a peg and they're going to make it. But Don Bluth was really kind of living hand to mouth. That he needed that hit to give him the momentum to go to the next hit, to give him the momentum to go to the next hit. And Secret of Nim was not a hit at the box office, but it was a movie that created the relationship that he had with Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And Steven Spielberg created the relationship that gave him a relationship with George Lucas for right. Land Before Time. And if there was any combination of people in the movie business, who you could add into your stable to take on Disney in the 1980s, that was a pretty powerful combination. That was Star Wars, and it was Spielberg. Yeah. That was that was a combo of people. Uh, also, you look at the sort of people that were producing his movies at that time during the height of Bluth. <clears throat> Kathleen Kennedy is a name that comes up. She's still sure. in charge of Lucasfilm now. So these are all big, powerful, influential people that are incredibly talented. And after Land Before Time... There was this moment where Bluth felt that he was not getting as much creative control as he wanted in the relationship with Spielberg and Lucas. And he broke that relationship and decided to go off on his own, similar to the way that he broke and went off on his own from Disney. And that was a bad move. 
um, that there's a stability to working with Amblin Entertainment, that you can also have something that curbs the more excessive weird things that you did in later movies, that if Spielberg was still part of that relationship, I doubt we'd have things like A Troll in Central Park. Mm-hmm. I doubt we'd still have things like Thumbelina, because they'd go, okay, that's stupid. And that there's a necessary veto there that mm-hmm. goes with you know, him having creative control, that there's a compromise that goes, because, again, filmmaking mm-hmm. is... A collaborative effort. It's something that you make with not just one person, but really hundreds of people, especially animation. Mm-hmm. But when I say The Little Mermaid, The Little Mermaid was the final hammer stroke. It was the stake going into the heart of Don Bluth. It was the Mortal Kombat fatality. <laughs> that it came after a beating, but it was the thing that finished it off. And he never bounced back from The Little Mermaid because The Little Mermaid jettisoned just Disney into the stratosphere for like a decade, there was no competing with them right. after that. But uh, if I could counter your point, in some ways, then Little Mermaid is actually the nadir of what he set out to do. Yeah, he, he succeeded. He succeeded in making Disney great again at the expense of his own work. I'm going to make a really weird analogy here. You could make a comparison to uh, Bernie Sanders as a presidential mm-hmm. candidate, and there are two levels of success you get. One is that he becomes a nominee and becomes this great political leader, which is Bluth wanted to make Don Bluth Studios this major thing. There's also forcing your competition to be better. And that's a limited success because it means you still lose. So I can see that as, yeah, he kicked Disney in the ass. But wouldn't Disney have stayed kicked in the ass if it had also made him bigger too? If he had won that battle, Disney's not going away in a slump. Yeah. So I I have to say that, you know... Yeah, his movies went downhill after Disney just flattened him. But after a while, after about five years, so did Disney. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Becky, what's your low point for Don Bluth? Joe, I've got to be with you. Thumbelina is the most awful animated thing that I've tried to suffer through, possibly with the exception of Avatar Last Airbender, the live action one. Um, <laughs> but uh, But you've got this story of this fish out of water um, through no fault of her own is born a complete freak to someone who's who only values you you for the fact that now I have a child oh and you're a weird child she gets no sense of agency or self-worth other than the than whether people find her pretty and then when they don't find her pretty enough she has to dress up in other weird shit by all accounts she's basically been roofied like on eight occasions kidnapped <laughs> and and like mildly resigned to just marry um whoever so then when she like finally is like mm, you know I don't really want to marry Marry you? That's kind of icky and creepy. Oh, the fairy prince! Yay! Let's do. Okay, it's just ridiculous <laughs> and awful, and I hate it. Oh, it's bad. Oh. It and and it's lacking some of the shimmer and magic that a lot of the other films had. Um, it's there's still sparkles, there's still darkness, but it's it's just flat. Hmm. I hate okay. it. Okay. Uh, wow. Oh. Hate's a strong word, Becky. I hate Nazis. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is also fair. <laughs> my my low point is a troll in Central Park. I didn't see it, but I probably probably would have liked Thumbelina less than I did. And um, I was super excited actually uh, to watch this movie because I remembered kind of in my nostalgia goggles that how much I loved Dom DeLuise and this movie made me not like Dom DeLuise <laughs> anymore. Yeah, because was... Itchy the dog is much better. <laughs> than... Even Itchy the dog. I mean, he's so good at like that nevish shtick that he does, like, and that's clearly 
they animate around it because they every character does that. But it's so rarely funny, and it t- you tire of it so fast. This movie is entirely full of that. That's all this is. Is him is him being this nevish little troll who's trying to. He's kind of cute because he wants to bring gr- green and flowers to his drab little orc world that he lives down. Um, but he cannot carry this movie. He cannot do it. And I think for to me it exemplifies the worst aspects of the Bluth movie. And one is like feeling so uncomfortable with the setting and the environment, like that is just hard to watch. It's just very hard to watch. Gnorga, which is the antagonist, the troll queen, wants everything to be miserable, and so therefore a large part of this movie is you being miserable with her. <laughs> <laughs> it's ugly. It's gray. And I know the premise of the world is that the troll is trying to turn a gray world green, and that's like that's 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 great. Uh, but he wants to change the whole world green, all of it. Like he wants to paper over all of Manhattan to make you know he wants to put vines over every building everywhere. That's Isn't what he does that in the, the end of the movie. Isn't that the same master plan that Poison Ivy has yeah. in Batman and Robin? <laughs> yeah, it's like they think so. Um, you know, and <laughs> two not- equally two two movies definitely on the same footing. Oh, <laughs> and I and I have to say that. Uh, also, as I, as I mentioned uh, before, the obligatory musical numbers are awful because Dom DeLuise can't can't carry it. But it's just, and aside from the fact that I love Charles Nelson Riley and he plays also plays a great nervous nevish character, it's too much to have two of those in one movie. It just really is. So that's my low point is Troll in Central Park. Okay, now let's drag ourselves out of the gutter and let's go for high point. Becky, what's your high point? High point is Fievel. Um F I E V E L or F E I V E L? Oh, yeah, you've seen that it's both ways in print on the screen. The opening is F E I V E L, which would be the Yiddish transliteration, and all subsequent marketing, it's F I E V E L. But I don't know why they left that in. Uh, that why. that aside, um, it succeeded in normalizing the history of a minority population and making it um, understandable and relatable to people that weren't part of that. So. In, you know, basically from like fourth grade onward for me, I was able to have people just understand that you celebrate Hanukkah, you know, because Fievel and Tanya did (laughs) and Mama and Papa did. Like, that's something that became understandable. And he was able to do that. And I lament that Disney wasn't able to make um, a black princess character relatable to a general public with the frog, you know, with Tiana and the, what is it, frog prince, um, that uh, that Mulan was an awesome movie and perhaps one of the more underrated Disney films, but it was made to say, "Here we have now the Asian protagonist." Yeah. Um, and and what um, an American Tale did was to say that just because you are a part of a minority population doesn't make your story less interesting, and it actually is everyone's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really powerful. Uh, for me, so my high point is kind of a selfish one. Um, no, it's perfect. And and yeah, that was powerful, and I think successfully done um, with that. Hmm. And I I'm I think that it went well with uh, with Don Bluth, and I don't think that it succeeded with Disney. I don't think that any time that Disney said, "Now we're going to make the story with the," you know, I mean, I don't think that every kid now says like. <laughs> My story is the same kid is the same as the Hawaiian kid because I saw Lilo and Stitch. You don't have kids going yeah. around saying Ohana means family, right? Um, that's that's something that is definitely awesome and inclusive to a non-white, non-European American population, but doesn't really resonate in the same way. I think as um, you know, as universally to kids that aren't reflected by those ethnicities. Sure, excellent, Mike. High point for Don Bluth. Oh, I think you're going to kick me for this. <laughs> 
Troll in Central Park? Uh, all Elvis? dogs? What? No, all dogs go to heaven is oh. my high point. What? Yes, oh. it is. I like that movie way more than I thought I would. And a lot of it comes from the fact that it's basically Breaking Bad for kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a weird fucking movie. And I think that it's got moral, moral ambiguity in it than a children's film that I, of any kind that I've ever seen. I've never seen something like that. It's like a crime noir story where it's about this guy who's a criminal who breaks out of prison with his henchmen and wants to get back into business and is murdered, straight out yeah. murdered yeah. by his ex-partner who doesn't want to share profits with him. He goes to the afterlife, to heaven, which he doesn't deserve because he's a monster. He's a uh, manipulative, selfish asshole. Um, he sneaks out because he doesn't want to believe that somebody got one over on him. Finds out that his uh, partner is keeping a little girl who has the power to talk to animals hostage as basically a form of human slavery. Yeah, because animals can't talk the language to cross species. Yeah, right? they can't talk to each other, but she can talk to all animals yeah. and other people. And he's using that to win at gambling. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, the main character decides that rather than rescuing this little girl, he decides to u- to kidnap her and use that scam as his own under the guise of rescuing her. So he's promising, he's, oh, I'm doing, I'm giving this money to charity, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Meanwhile, he's just lying to this child over and over again, knowing that the clock that he's literally wearing around his neck is ticking and ticking and ticking. And as he came back to earth there's like all these nightmarish thing the most haunting thing in the whole fucking movie is that voice going charlie yeah you can never come <laughs> back you can never come back and it is fucking crazy um i mean the whole concept of this movie is essentially more than uh more than an american tale more than a land before time more than the secret of nim secret of nim has a dude get slashed across the chest with a sword and you see blood on it has needle going through the stomach of a rat and injecting crazy glowing stuff oh, yeah, yeah you see some really yeah. disturbing dark stuff in it there's yeah. a lot of pathos in those movies yeah. but if you look at every other one of these movies there is a version of it you could see disney doing you can see a version of an American tale, which is much more sanitized, that Disney would do. Mm-hmm. You can see a version of The Secret of Nim that Disney would do. You can see a version of The Land Before Time. They're a lot more colorful. They're a lot safer. There's more of a sense of a childhood emotional safety net that Don Bluth usually denies kids until the very end of the movie. But there is no fucking version of All Dogs Go to Heaven that Disney would ever have done. And it sort of, to me, despite the fact that there are many ways that it is a hot mess and there's that weird thing with the alligator that comes out of fucking nowhere. Saurus ex machina is what I've taken to calling it. (laughs) Lizard from the machine. But there are all these things that are so Don Bluth. It is the most Don Bluth. It's like they weaponized a strain of Don Bluth and injected it into more Don Bluth. This movie sort of does all the things. It has a morally ambiguous main character voiced by Burt Reynolds, of all people, who is a bit of a creep who learns not to be. And it's not like, oh, I'm rough around the edges and I learn not to be mean. No, he is a fucking asshole for most of this movie before he learns to be self-sacrificing. 
And there is a, it actually addresses death. They straight out have the character die. The villain dies. You see him no. in heaven at the end. Uh, the, the stuff that you don't see in other Disney movies. And I think it's the fact to me that this is the most bluthed it has ever bluth bluthed <laughs> that I have got to put all dogs go to heaven as my high point. Very good. Very good. Joe? Yes. High point. Um. So, uh, and I, my the following statements uh, do not include a troll in Central Park, but uh, okay. Dom DeLuise is my high point. Oh, because I, there is a scene. I think it's in the Secret of Nim, um, where he's playing the crow, Jeremy the crow, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's all wrapped up in a ribbon, and Mrs. Brisby comes out and says something about the cat, and he's like, he's like, cat, I'm a, I'm allergic to cat. And it's this whole thing where he's just like, like the, the cat is near, and he's like allergic to it, and it's like when I was a kid, I would, I would cry. I was laughing so hard at that scene. I think that. He has, he delivers, and like I said, this does not include. I I feel bad because he he cannot carry that. A troll in Central Park. It's just he feels like he's trying so fucking hard. Yes, yeah. and he just cannot do it. And he's done it so many times before. He's great in American Tale. He's great in uh, Secret of Nim. He's great in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, and it's it just you know this kind of. He's so good at doing it, and he's so genuinely funny in those parts, you know. With and um, well, he's able to make funny around the words. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, but there's also a great feeling that comes from a great warmth hmm. that comes ah, from him. That's you know, true. like the 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 number he does with Feibel about being a duo. You know, like yeah. it's, it's good stuff. You know, it just it it like warms your heart. Hmm. Um, I think and, you've warmed my heart a little, Joe. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not, I'm a comic book fan, all right? But having my heart warmed, that's not something I enjoy. Because if you're warming my heart, that means you're only seconds away from plunging something cold and sharp into it. All right? And it has happened again, and especially as somebody that started reading comics in the 90s, where Marvel oh. would do that every five seconds. Oh, you like this story? You're like, die, 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 die. I mean. Hey, have you read th- Game of Thrones? <laughs> no, no, and I'm not going to. I'm done this is i cannot deal with it anymore i i i'm just too sensitive but um yeah you know it's it was sad for me when he died because he was such a big part of my childhood because of Mm. the bluth canon because of the bluth movies okay fantastic well my high point is predictably is the secret of nim um and it's because it's like i think it's the rarefied fulfillment of his dream of remaking a classic disney feature but in his own way um and for me it's the only movie that i i felt was really rewarding rewatching it as an adult um and it still holds it being this sort of like strange fascinating but compelling animated story and for me narratively it's so much more cohesive than re- the rest of bluth's films and probably because of that sort of make it up as you go along approach that we talked about where they were a lot of times they were stringing together scenes rather than working from a completed script. Um, but, uh, you know, it's based, based on a novel. And I think that's part of the reason, I guess, why it seems so cohesive. Um, but that microcosmic world that just sort of opens up as you further along, you go on the plot. And when you see the rat city underneath the rose bush, it just so much more interesting, visually interesting and thematically interesting stuff happens in this cascading way that makes it more endearing to me. Um, 
I mean, and secondly, utilizing the performance of like John Carradine and Derek Jacoby as two like f- incredible fucking legends uh, of 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 cinema, um, as well as Dom DeLuise, the love starved crow. Um, I, I it's this cast of characters is incredibly competent, and I don't think it falls into the absurdity and foolishness that later Bluth movies do. So it kind of kind of, rem, it kind of remains this of this air of authenticity that I doesn't that doesn't go away. That luster does not tarnish. I'm never frustrated with watching Nim. There's lots of points like Anastasia was was painful for me because you know that she is the princess. So you're waiting the whole movie for That's, everyone to figure it out, and you're just like, God, I have to keep sitting through this until she gets there. I never feel that way with Nim. I always feel like things are unfolding, and they're 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 more interesting, and I'm seeing crazier characters. I'm getting more involved in this, um, and I'm never waiting. I'm never waiting. And it's dark. It's rich. It's revisitable. That's the the part that's great for me, um, and a worthy successor to Walt Disney's films, and I think it's the one that Bluth is going to be remembered for. I agree. Okay. Well, I think that about sums it up, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining our panel. Joe Pratty, thanks for coming back. My pleasure. Anytime. I love, I love having these discussions. And we love, you, we love having you here. And Becky, thanks for stumbling up the stairs. Thank you. <laughs> it's my- paved with cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and- yeah, it's really weird to walk up. It's, <laughs> it's odd. And Mike Gillis, as always. Good to be here. Okay. And remember, you can never go back. <laughs> <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran Our editor was Mike Gillis Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. See, I'm allergic to cat. I'm allergic to cat. I'm allergic to cat. I'm Excuse me, pardon me.